Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Lord, as we open our Bibles, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall in this place like never before. Lord, may I decrease and you increase. We've come not to hear from man, but to hear from God Almighty, and we recognize that what we hold in our hands right now are the words of the creator of all that we know. Lord, we set our full attention on your word. We ask you to come and instruct us now. You know where every single one of us are. So we ask you to take your word, as we've not come to hear from a man, but to hear from God Almighty, and you would take your word, and you would reach right into our hearts and touch us right where we're at. We ask for your anointing on your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, as you guys well know. And last week, you guys will remember, Brandon took us, and he did a phenomenal job last week, taking us through Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, he pointed out a couple of very, very important things. One was that we all have opportunity right around us, opportunities that we can step into with the gospel right around us. God's at work right now, right around every single one of us, which was incredibly fitting and timely as that very week, over a hundred of you guys had attended the evangelism training that we had uh, Zach come in for, and so you were getting equipped to do just that, step into all those opportunities that God provides. And we would remind ourselves as we think back on Acts chapter 3, that, that as Peter and John were walking into the temple on that day, they were just walking into a time of prayer. They did this every day. There was nothing particularly unusual about that particular day or, or when they were going up there. They had no way of knowing that as they approached the temple, they were about to lead thousands of people to Christ, what did they do? They just simply stepped into the opportunity as God presented it. The second thing that Brandon brought out, which was phenomenal, is this great expectancy that we should live in. We serve a big God, yes? A big God that is on mission. And so we should have a great expectancy of God moving, right? We have to remember there in Acts chapter 3 that the people that had gathered around Peter and John were in God's temple, right? And they had gone there to study God's word and they had gone there to worship God and pray to God, yet they were surprised when God did a miracle right in their midst. And Peter even asked them, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Listen, you, you came to the temple of God to pray to God, to worship God, to read his word, and you're surprised that he's here moving? And we should be then a people of great faith and expectation. If we have a big God, that we have a big God that is going to move. Now, if we were to end our study of the early church right there in Acts chapter 3, what we would have would be a very rosy, ideal, yet inaccurate picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. 
up until chapter 3, everything's been going really well for the church, hasn't it? I mean, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved and baptized. It tells us that the Lord is adding to their number daily, so people are continuing to get saved. The apostles are teaching, and these new baby Christians are growing in the Lord. We see that God is moving powerfully, and people are getting healed. There was this beautiful and great fellowship that was going on among believers and this mutual care and love for one another. And people were just providing for the needs within the church as, as they were there. And their prayer meetings were full. It says there that they were continually devoted to prayer. Things were going great. In fact, we read at the end of chapter two, kind of the vibe of what was going on at the church at that moment. It says this, day by day, they were continuing with one mind, this, this great unity. They were together with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were getting saved. And then as we saw last week in chapter 3, in the name and the power of Christ, Peter and John walk into the temple, heal this man who had been lame for over 40 years. It draws a huge crowd of people together, and Peter preaches the gospel to him, and what happens? Thousands more get saved. So things are going really good, aren't they? Swimmingly. I mean, it's been smooth sailing until we get to chapter 4. And what we run into in chapter 4 is the first ever opposition and persecution within the church. And it begins in chapter 4, and it doesn't end. In fact, that same opposition and persecution is happening now worldwide, even to today. And the opposition to the gospel is not going to come to an end until Jesus himself returns at the second coming, which displays a couple of things for us. One is it fulfills Jesus' promise that opposition was to come against the church, right? Jesus told his church that, that you're going to be persecuted. And number two, it introduces to the church a very, very biblical principle that all true mission will at some point find opposition. Jesus said it this way. He said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He's saying, this isn't new, guys. If you, come, if you run into opposition, well, it's only because I ran into it first. It says, if you were of the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so today we run into the first ever persecution that the church faces. And we pick up in verse 1. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to walk through the, uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to go all the way to chapter 31. And so keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter uh, 4. And we're just going to walk all the way through it beginning in verse 1. So let's look at verse 1. It says, as Peter and John were speaking, right? They were sharing the gospel with this large crowd that had gathered in the temple compound. And it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. And being greatly disturbed, 
because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid their hands on them. Now, that's not laying their hands on them to pray for them, right? Sometimes we read in the Bible that that you lay hands on people to pray for them. That's not what's happening here. They're laying hands on them to throw them in the clink. They laid their hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, in chapter 3, if you remember, Peter gets this opportunity to preach before so many thousands of people in the temple compound. Him and John were walking into the temple. They found a man who had been lame since uh, his mother's womb. We learn later that he was over 40 years old. They, in the name of Jesus and the power of Christ, heal this man. An entire crowd comes around, and now now Peter begins to preach. But it tells us that there's a problem. You, You see, the problem is that Peter is preaching a resurrected Jesus in the temple compound where the very priests and Sadducees that run that temple compound are the very same men who rejected Jesus, sent him to Pontius Pilate to be crucified on the cross. And so now these guys hear Peter preaching the resurrection and they bring the temple guard, which is kind of the Jewish temple police force. They had a a police force that would keep order up on the temple mountain. So they come with this uh, little temple guard police force and they burst in on Peter's message and they haul him and John. And by the way, they haul the guy that got healed off to jail. They just take the whole lot of them and throw them in jail. And it says that they were particularly disturbed that Peter was preaching that Jesus was resurrected and that those that come to Christ by faith would also be resurrected. And this is problematic for these priests because these priests belong to an order of Judaism called Sadducees. There there were different groups within Judaism. You have the Pharisees, we remember them from the Gospels, and the Sadducees. Well, the problem with Sadducees is they didn't believe in a resurrection, period. They, They just didn't believe. And secondly, it was these very priests, these Sadducees, the chief priests and his chief priests under him, who paid off Roman guards to lie about the resurrection, right? And it tells us in Matthew chapter 28 that these guards went to the chief priests. It says they came in the city, reported to the chief priests all that had happened. They assembled all the elders and consulted together and gave them a large sum of money to lie about the resurrection, correct? And they said, well, don't worry. If this gets back to the governor's ear and you guys get in trouble, we'll cover for you. And it says that these soldiers took their money and spread this lie throughout Jerusalem. They'd gone to great lengths to cover up the resurrection, but now Peter and John are standing in the very temple compound that they themselves run and preaching the resurrection. That becomes quite problematic. Then in verse 3, we find out that they were thrown into jail overnight because it was late. Now, according to Jewish law, there were to be no criminal proceedings after sunset, no criminal trials after sunset. And that tells us then that that was one of the 22 Jewish laws that was broken during Jesus's trial, right? Because they hauled him off at night to have a a secret trial and that was illegal. But they actually follow the law in the case of Peter and John in the wait till the next day. Then as we come to verse 4, what we get is a beautiful lesson in the power and sovereignty of God. Look at verse 4. 
But even in the face of them getting thrown in jail, it says, but many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So in the face of opposition and persecution, what's happening? God's still at work, isn't he? It didn't shut God down. God wasn't bothered by it. Some 5,000 men have now, the church has grown to some 5,000 men. And, and kind of typical for that time and culture, they didn't record children and, and, and women in that number. So we would have to assume then that the number would be probably over 10,000 that the church has grown to in this short amount of time. But the lesson for the apostles and the lessons for us is what? To be faithful no matter what. Because being on mission with Christ may be hard, right? There may be opposition to it. There may be antagonistic people. It may get scary at times, but that doesn't mean that God's not still at work in spite of the opposition. Peter and John get arrested. They get thrown into jail, but thousands get saved. And if we were to look down throughout all of church history, one thing that we would find is that it's often in the places where the church is most heavily persecuted and opposed that it's having its greatest revival. And that's true even to today. You look through church history, you'll see that as true. But even today, if you look at what's going on in places like Iran right now, many, many people are getting saved. They have no religious freedom to come to Jesus or express the gospel in places like Laos, in China, in Ethiopia, in Indonesia, in parts of Northern Africa. There's a great spiritual awakening happening in these locations. So so the message to them and us is what? We never back down. Even in the face of opposition, God is still at work. Now we come to verse 5, and we come to the next day. They've been in jail all night. And it says on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. Now, what we need to understand about what verse 5 and 6 tells us is that this is a big deal. They didn't go, hey, we're having a problem with a couple of these Christians. Call a couple elders over here to talk to them. They called the entire council together. Like all the chief Pharisees, all the elders, all the chief priests, and the chief priests under them, and all of high priestly family. These are the most powerful and influential men in all of Israel. And it's worth noting that these are the same very men that condemned Jesus and effectively got Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus only some weeks earlier. Now that has to be going through the mind of Peter and John as they stand before this very same council, don't you think? See, we already know what happened because we know that Peter and John go on and do more ministry, right? But you have to imagine that as they stood before these very powerful, powerful men that had condemned Jesus just weeks earlier and effectively got Pontius Pilate to crucify him, that they're wondering what their fate will be as well. And we don't want to forget that Peter had been in the midst of these men before. Remember, Peter followed Jesus into the court of Caiaphas. He's been around these same men. 
He made eye contact with Jesus when Jesus was being tried by these same men. He's seen Jesus bound before these men. He's seen them punching Jesus in the face and spitting upon Jesus. He knows what these men are capable of doing. And when Peter was there, how well did that turn out? Right? He was challenged by a little servant girl. Hey, you're with Jesus, right? To which Peter denied, rejected, disowned, and abandoned Jesus. So, so we got to remind ourselves that the last time that Peter was near to this council of very, very important men, things didn't go so well for Peter. Now, verse 7. Now they took them, Peter, John, and the man who had been crippled, and put them in the center. And they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? It would seem that that's kind of an obvious answer. But by their accusation, these men are admitting that a legitimate miracle has happened, right? They're saying, okay, we see the guy standing here. He's been healed. There's no doubt about that. We can't deny it. They're admitting that there is a miracle that's taken place, but they're rejecting the most obvious and just the, the most logical conclusion that God is the one that's at work. And the implication here is that it was by some other power that Peter and John were able to do this kind of a, a miracle. They're kind of, by implication, saying, well, what kind of nefarious thing are you guys into? What kind of dark thing are you guys into? This is an accusation against these guys and really a call for them to confess. But now we see Peter's defense. And what we want to make note of is that there's something incredibly different about Peter this time as he stands before this council compared to the last time he was around this council. And the difference makers in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And then what? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Church, we need that. Look, look at the difference in a Peter that, that ran out from that council crying bitterly, denying and rejecting Jesus to now standing before them, filled with the Holy Spirit. And watch what he says. This is heavy. This is a scathing defense by Peter. Look at this. Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man was made well, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, notice this, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected. Notice what it says, by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, that's heavy right there. I don't know if we... You got a picture of Jesus standing before the most gnarly guys in all of Israel, the guys with the power to, to send him to the grave, and this is what he's going to drop on them? And he points out the irony of the fact. He says, listen, I'm on trial, like I've been thrown in jail overnight, and I'm standing before you. 
I'm on trial for doing good to a sick man, verse 9, but I'm standing before men who themselves are murderers. And he says, listen, listen to what he says, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by the name of Christ Jesus the Nazarene, whom you crucified. Like, that's heavy. Peter just says, you want to know the name? You want to know the power? The name was, is in the guy that you murdered. And the power is in the God that raised him from the dead. And then he goes on as if that wasn't enough to tell him in verse 12 that none of you guys are going to get saved unless you turn your life to him because there's no other name by which men must be saved. Guys, that's a different Peter right there than the last time he was around this council. We need them. We need this kind of Holy Spirit boldness, church. This should be in every one of our prayer lives on a regular basis. Lord, make me that bold. Lord, fill me with your spirit that I would be that bold. Now, on verse 12, we come to the exclusivity of Christ to save. And this is a very important verse, and it is a very difficult verse for a lot of people. Because what Jesus is saying is there is but one way. What Peter is saying is there is but one way of salvation. And so it is incredibly important. I don't feel like we have enough time today to give it a thorough treatment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just come back next week and we're going to just focus on verse 12. It's worth our time to really dig in there because it is such an important and problematic verse for so many people. So we'll just scoot right along to verse 13 and come back to verse 12 next week. Now, verse 13 says, As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they were amazed, and look at what it says, and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Church, we should want and pursue this, that that our lives would be recognized as having been with Jesus. Jesus. People looked at these men and they were amazed and astonished, not because of who they were and what they did, but because of the influence that Jesus had on their life. That that needs to be us. We need to be a people that are so spending time with Jesus that when people look at us, they see Christ in us. You you know, this council that now surrounds Peter and John were the most educated, most prominent men in all of Israel. They had huge educations, the the brightest of the bright. And they must have thought to themselves as they bring Peter and John, these podunk fishermen in, and set them in the middle of this council, they must have thought to themselves, "We'll, we'll have no problem working over these guys because they're mere fishermen. They're, listen, I've said this before, when it says untrained right there, you could underline that, and the Greek word for untrained is the word idiotes. You guys have, guess what, what our English word is? That's where we get our word idiots from. They, they literally said these are uneducated idiots standing in front of us. But they had been with Jesus, and it changed them. Right? And that's the question for us. Are we changed by our time with Jesus? It's a very simple application, isn't it? Are you, am I, spending enough time with Jesus 
that his character, his likeness, his nature is rubbing off on you and I. When people encounter us, do they see Christ in us? If not, the application is very simple, isn't it? What is it? More time with Jesus, right? Guys, this is an indispensable truth that I have seen in my life. And I know that many of you guys have noticed this as well. The more I'm with Jesus, the more I reflect him. The less time I spend with Jesus, the more I'm in the flesh. Can anybody testify to that? The more I'm with Jesus, the more I reflect him. I get up in the morning, I spend time with Jesus, I spend my day praying to Jesus, I I reflect him. I get up in the morning and I do my own thing, it's the flesh, right? Then verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. And when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to to confer together with one another. So they send Peter and John out and saying in verse 13, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Guys, this is incredibly sad right here. With overwhelming evidence, with undeniable evidence right in front of them, the logical and rational conclusion is what? to follow that evidence that leads to Jesus. But yet, even in the face of undeniable evidence, they reject Jesus. And it's sad. And it demonstrates to us that there are people who have chosen to so harden their heart that no matter what God does for them, they're still going to reject it. That's sad. And it ought to break our hearts. I've read this quote before, but I'm going to read it again because it fits here so well. The famous atheist Frederick Nietzsche once said this. He said, If one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in Him. Did you hear what he just said? If somebody proved it, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what's happening in this council is exactly what Frederick Nietzsche was saying. If one were to prove this God of the Christians to us, we should be even less able to believe in Him, and it is our preferences that decide against Christianity and not the argument. It's fitting to what's going on in the hearts of these men. So, in verses 17 and 18, they come up with a brilliant plan to stop all of Christianity. Here it is. But so that it, meaning the gospel, will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they bring Peter and John back in, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So their solution to squelch Christianity was to give them a stern talking to and to tell them to stop. How do you guys think that went over? Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. So he kind of turns it around and puts it on them. He goes, hey guys, I want to ask you a question. Should I listen to God or listen to you? And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, for we cannot stop speaking about that which we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old, whom the miracle of healing had been performed. So now the religious leaders find themselves in a bind, because everyone in Jerusalem has either seen the miracle or heard of the miracle, and they're praising God for it. And they let them go. Now, this last little section is what I want us to really grab a hold of today. When we leave here, this is what we leave with. I want us to recognize something. I want us to to see what happened in the early church in the face of persecution and threat. What did they do when things got unfair and uncertain? What did they do when leaders and politicians were corrupt, right? That's a little bit on everybody's mind right now, isn't it? What, what did these guys do when the leaders and the politicians were corrupt? Their go-to church was prayer. That is to be the go-to of every single one of us. They, they didn't march around the Capitol building waving signs. They didn't write a bunch of petitions to the senators in Rome. They didn't form a political action group and send out an email chain, which I get 2,000 of. Please stop sending them if you're sending them. What did they do? They gathered in prayer. Because they understood what Paul taught us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Right here on the screen. For the weapons of our warfare are what? Not of the flesh but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Listen, we've been in jail all night. The, the, The most powerful men in the land are against us. What should we do? We pray. We pray. And it's for that reason that our prayer meetings should be bigger than our Sunday morning. For that very reason right there. Now, I want us to take special note of what they prayed and how they prayed. Look at verse... 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, look, they lifted up their voices to God in one accord, unity in prayer. And what did they pray? Oh Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Stop right there. All of our prayers should start like that with a recognition of who God is. The first thing that they prayed was in relationship to who God is. They said, God, you are the God of all creation. When we start prayer like that, it puts our prayer life in perspective. When we say, wait a minute, if you're the God of all creation, if you spoke everything into existence and there's nothing that exists that you didn't speak into existence, then what I'm about to ask you for is not too big for you. And therefore, we pray big prayers. If we have a big God, we ought to pray big prayers. Guys, I'm going to be 100% honest with you on this deal. I have sat through more anemic prayer meetings than I ever would hope to. 
I've sat through prayer meetings. I don't know who they're praying to because they're not praying to my God because my God's a big God. And these prayer meetings, well, Lord, if you're out there, kind of maybe you could come and help us with this little thing. And, you know, and so small, so manini. We've, we've got a big God. We ought to pray big prayers. If we're going, wait a minute, you're the creator of all things, like you made the whole thing, then what we can pray is not going to be beyond you. So we ought to pray in accordance to who God is. And that's how they begin. They say, oh Lord, it's you who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. Then they go on. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devised futile things and the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, they say, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There was Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's everybody. To do what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Don't miss that last bit. Notice what happened here. Everybody was gathered against Jesus, but what? To do what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That means then that as they pray, they start out going, you're the God of all creation. And then they get into the power and sovereignty of God saying, everybody was against you. Herod was against you. Pilate was against you. The Gentiles were against you and the Jews were against you. Yet, You used them to accomplish your plan and your purpose of salvation through the cross. Guys, there's no no greater power than that. The, The very ones that thought they were tearing it down and thwarting the purposes of God were used as the very ones to fulfill those purposes. So they began, you're the God of all creation. And then they get into the power and sovereignty of God and they say, all these people that came against you, you turn it right around and you use them to accomplish your, your, your purposes and plan. And now that they have a right perspective in who they're praying to, now they can come to Jesus in petition. But look at what they say when they come to Jesus in petition. Look at verse 29. They come to the Lord and they say, what? And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence and boldness, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God in boldness. Notice something in verse 29. Very important. Notice that they don't ask God to stop the threat. They don't ask for an end to the opposition because Jesus had already told them that if they get out there on mission, opposition would come. Remember, we read that in John chapter 15. If they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. Or if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, Jesus said. So, So Jesus had already told them that if they go out there on the ragged edge, if they get out there on mission and begin to share the gospel, that that there were going to be people that are antagonistic and hostile and there will be resistance and opposition. But rather, what do they ask for? To be bolstered up, to meet the challenge. What's the prayer of the early church? For backbone. That's what they're asking for. Lord, Lord, give us fortitude boldness, 
that we might be faithful to face the opposition. You already told us there's going to be opposition. Just give us the backbone to be able to stand against the opposition. Church, church, we need this. This ought to be our prayer. And it was convicting to me this week because I was thinking, like, how much do I pray this? How much does the prayer life of the early church reflect the prayer life of the church today? Because if we were honest, and me just being honest, so often my prayer life is quite self-serving, right? Usually, our prayer lives are consumed primarily with all the things that we think God should give or do for us. God, uh, I'm coming to you in prayer, and here's my long list of everything that I think you ought to do for me. But, But how did these guys pray? They prayed, Lord, we're going to get out there and follow you into mission. Would you make us bold? Wow, we need that. That that needs to be at the top of my list right now. And God answered. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered was shaken. So often in church meetings and some of these Places now, the people are the ones that are shaking and they get into all kind of stuff and try to create all this energy within the church, not here. Man, when they prayed and they said, God, we're, we're going to go out on mission. Would you just make us bold? God said, yeah, I'll make you bold. And he shook the place because the people can't shake the house. God shook the house so that they would know that God was with them. And it says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And we read one of the results of this holy boldness in Acts chapter 6. It'll come up here on the screen. And it says this. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. But here's my favorite part. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You mean the guys that arrested Peter and John? Those priests, see, God is a big God. He's a sovereign God. He's a faithful God. He's a God that's on mission at work all around every single one of us right now. And oftentimes, we don't see it in the moment. Peter and John didn't see it in the moment, what God was doing behind the scenes with, with the very people that they were testifying to. And right now in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your school, God is at work in people's lives. We just need to be bold and faithful to fulfill what he's called us to whenever he presents that opportunity. And so we need to pray, don't we? We we need to very much echo the prayer of that early church as they gathered together and they say, Lord, what you've called us to is too big for us. We need your power. We need your boldness. If we're going to be faithful, it's going to be you working through us. So what I did first service as these guys come up and they get ready for a second set of worship, what we did first service was, I just want to pray that prayer over us as a church. I want us to just confess the, the lack of faithfulness that we've had and the lack of boldness that we've had to the Lord, and then ask Him to come in all might and all power upon us, His church, and to fill us with His Holy Spirit, 
And so first service, what we did is anybody that wanted to be prayed over like that just stood up. Not right now, but as I begin to pray, if that's you, just stand up right where you are. Tom, you can go ahead and hit those lights if our worship team come and get ready and we'll begin to pray. Lord, we, we stand together and, and we say that we need you. Like, like what you've called us to is beyond us. For us to be able to be and to do what you've called us to is, is beyond us. We are desperate for you. And we now echo exactly what the early church said. Lord, take note of where we're at and recognize that we're weak and we can't do it on our own. And then fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would be bold and confident and faithful. Lord, Lord, we stand in faith before you. We think of those in our lives that need to hear your gospel. Those that you've placed in our lives for that very purpose. We ask right now that you would anoint every single one of us as we stand in faith before you that you would anoint us with the boldness and the confidence to go and proclaim you fearlessly to them and leave the results to you. We know you're a big God. So we ask, Lord, that you would use us in big ways. We pray for the thousands across our North Shore that need to be saved. Lord, we ask that you would bring them into our lives, that, that we might proclaim the good news that you came from heaven to a sin-soaked world, and you gave yourself, died on a cross for every single sin, every ounce of guilt and shame in mine and their lives, Lord. And then you rose again to show that you and you alone have power over the grave. May that be the message on every one of our lips, and may we have the boldness of the Holy Spirit that we see in the early church upon us now. Lord, we ask you to do that. In Jesus' holy name, amen.